Welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Anna Marsh, functional medicine and trauma-informed nutritional therapist and chronic fatigue syndrome recoverer or survivor. I'm not quite sure which is the best one to say. Survivor sounds very dramatic. Recoverer doesn't sound quite so um, slick. So either way. I have recovered from chronic fatigue syndrome and I'm here today with you to talk about blood sugar and fatigue. What I'd like to cover in today's episode is what has blood sugar got to do with chronic fatigue and why is it so important? And here's a bit of a spoiler alert, it is very important. Then I also want to cover signs of imbalanced blood sugar how to begin to balance your blood sugar and factors that will influence your blood sugar control. So let's dive straight in and we can talk about what has blood sugar got to do with chronic fatigue. And ultimately, fatigue is the end result of the inability to produce enough ATP or energy to meet the body's needs. So ATP being the energy currency of the body. There are a variety of different mechanisms by which our ATP production can be influenced and blood sugar dysregulation is one of them. So if you are experiencing changes in your blood sugar, if you think that blood sugar could be a problem for you, it's always something that I check with all of my clients, even if I think their blood sugar is absolutely fine, I always say, let's just check because it's low hanging fruit. It's something really practical and actionable that you can address. So if it's a problem for you, we really want to nip it in the bud because it is something that will impact your body's ability to produce energy. And the reason for this is because Food is fuel and we get food or we get fuel from the proteins, fats and carbohydrates in our diet. And the brain needs glucose and a lot of fatigue is brain fatigue. The brain feels tired, there's low brain energy and yes, sometimes the muscles of the metabolic system can feel tired and lacking in energy as well. But I know when I was experiencing chronic fatigue syndrome, there were days when my muscles and my body felt like they were actually okay. They could do stuff, but my brain just felt really, really tired. It didn't want to do anything. And yes, of course, there were also days when I just had heavy, tired muscles and a heavy, tired brain, and I didn't want to do anything at all. But brain energy and good and healthy brain function is really, really important for our fatigue recovery. And therefore, when we are eating food in our diet, that food either needs to get converted into glucose. For example, we can use amino acids from proteins to make glucose and that could supply the brain with energy. Or we can make ketones if we follow a ketogenic diet and that can supply the brain with energy. But at the end of the day, the brain's preferred fuel source is glucose. 
And that doesn't mean the more sugar or the more glucose we eat, the better. But we need to be able to get that glucose across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain, into the brain cells so that the brain can use it as energy. And part of that process requires good blood sugar control. Because if blood sugar is too high, we actually get poor brain glucose penetration, which means that we've got a lot of glucose in our bloodstream, but we're not able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and get that glucose into the brain cells where it's required to make energy and make ATP. So more is not better, but what we actually want to do is we want to control glucose within a narrow range. And I'll tell you that range specifically, this is what I advise my clients, is anywhere between 4 and 6.3 millimole per liter. Obviously, if you're using a different set of units, you'll need to do the conversion for those units. So what that means is the blood sugar is perhaps going up after we eat a meal. We digest the carbohydrate in that meal. It travels from the gut into the bloodstream and we'll experience an increase in blood sugar after we eat. But two hours later, two hours after we've eaten, we want that blood sugar to maybe have peaked at about 45 minutes, one hour after eating, and that peak should not exceed 6.1, 6.3 millimoles per liter. And then we should have it back down to baseline by about two hours after a meal. And baseline would either be whatever it was before you ate. So if your blood sugar was 4.5 before you ate, maybe it would be good for it to be around about 4.55 after two hours after you've eaten your meal. So that's the narrow range we're looking for. If blood sugar is going too high, there's going to be a lot of consequences. So if blood sugar goes higher than seven, that would be defined as hyperglycemia. And that's when we typically start to see poor brain penetration, although arguably it could happen at lower levels. We're also starting to see an increase in the need for insulin. And then that increase in insulin you know, over time, that can lead to type 2 diabetes, but it can also increase inflammation in the body, which is not going to be supportive of fatigue recovery and good levels of energy. But on the other side is what happens if blood sugar goes too low? If your blood sugar drops too low, maybe um, you're not eating enough. Maybe you have, um, you're exercising too much. This would probably be for those people who are still quite physically active but very tired. Um, so under eating or over exercising for how much you're eating um, or just eating erratically, skipping meals, eating the wrong types of food, that can sometimes cause blood sugar to go very high and maybe crash very low. And when blood sugar crashes too low, the body panics, the body can go into a stressed state and we can get increases in stress hormones like adrenaline or adrenaline and cortisol and that is dysregulating for the nervous system. 
You can do all the, you know, breathing exercises and somatic practices that you like. But if your blood sugar is on a roller coaster ride, it's going to feel very, very challenging, probably almost impossible, dare I say, for you to experience a very calm and settled and regulated nervous system because your window of tolerance is going to be very narrow if your blood sugar is crashing. So the goal here is that we really want to have stability. Yes, we will experience blood sugar highs and blood sugar lows as we eat throughout the day, but we want to minimize the impact of those highs and lows because we want to minimize the poor brain glucose penetration. We want to make sure we're not producing too much insulin, that we're able to have good insulin sensitivity of the cells to take up the glucose and get it into the muscle tissue where we can use it. We also want to make sure we're not riding that roller coaster ride of highs and lows and then producing a lot of stress hormones because that can also then be dysregulating for our sex hormones, for our thyroid hormone, for our sleep, for inflammation in the body. All of these things would be potentially influenced um, by these blood sugar highs and lows. Hopefully you understand a little bit about why blood sugar regulation is very important for fatigue recovery. So now I'd like to talk about the signs that you may have some imbalanced blood sugar. And generally speaking, there's two patterns that I typically tend to see with my clients. The first pattern, which I'll just refer to as pattern A, is the low blood sugar type. And this is often created when there is erratic eating, when somebody has a lot of stress, or they're just eating a diet which is imbalanced. And there may be difficulty waking up in the morning, maybe no appetite during the morning, often because stress levels are very high. They may experience dips in energy during the day. Often they'll lose function before meals. So for example, they may experience poor mental function, fatigue, difficulty focusing and concentrating, maybe feeling a little bit hangry, and then they'll eat something and they'll feel much better. They may feel energized after meals, but may crash a little bit later, may crash about three or four in the afternoon, have that typical, you know, afternoon munchies, afternoon cravings. They may be irritable at times, lightheaded, dizziness. They may have a lot of cravings for sweet things, and they may find it difficult to sleep through the night because possibly a low blood sugar is then increasing their stress hormones and that's waking them up. So that would be the first kind of pattern, and maybe there's an opportunity here for you to just think, well, do I experience any of these things? And then the next pattern, we'll call it pattern B, would be the high insulin type. This is often created when somebody has just been eating a diet which is too high in carbohydrate for too long, or perhaps they've been in stress for a very long time and they're quite depleted, um, maybe from an adrenal gland perspective. And this type of person may wake up feeling unrefreshed. They may wake up craving sugar. They really need the sugar to have the energy to get going, but then 
the caveat is they can't actually get it into their cells and use it. So it can then get stored as excess body fat. Um, they may experience fatigue after meals. So they may eat and then blood sugar goes really high or they produce very large amounts of insulin. And that means that even though they're putting all this fuel into their body, it can't actually go where it needs to go. And therefore, they're not energized by their food. They may need stimulants. For example, they always crave something sweet after a meal or they um, always need to have some coffee maybe in the afternoon um, and they may find it difficult falling asleep. So whereas the previous type might fall asleep okay and then wake up in the night, this person may find it difficult to fall asleep. Often when I teach this to my clients, they may also resonate with a little bit of A and a little bit of B, and, and that's okay as well. It's okay to be both types. But essentially, if you resonate more with type A, which is sort of this up and down, highs and lows, the goal is to achieve stability in your blood sugar. We really want to stabilize blood sugar. And if you resonate more with this pattern B type, then the goal here is to become more flexible. So we're looking for flexibility. And what this means is the ability to actually go without a meal and when I'm, I'm not saying miss a meal, but, you know, have a good chunk of time between meals and um, not be so reliant on carbohydrates um, and not so reliant on food all the time so that we become metabolically flexible, which means we have the flexibility to use different fuels, for example, the fat that's already stored on our bodies, instead of needing to yeah, eat all the time to supply energy. We have metabolic flexibility. How do you know for sure if blood glucose control is a problem for you? You may know intuitively because you feel it and you feel the dysregulation in your body and you just know your blood glucose or blood sugar isn't right. But the other thing you can also do, and this is what I get my clients to do, is to do some monitoring of their blood sugar to check. So you can buy a diabetic glucometer, which is one of those little finger prick devices where you, you have a little monitor and you have your test strips and then you prick your finger and you put the blood onto the test strip and the monitor will tell you what your blood glucose is. When I first started measuring my blood sugar, that's what I used all the time. Since then, technology has come a long way and we also have the option of a continuous glucose monitor or a CGM and a continuous glucose monitor is a monitor or like a little patch that you stick onto the back of your arm it connects to an app on your phone and that means at any moment in time you can tap the app on your phone to the patch on the back of your arm and you'll get a reading on your phone which will tell you what your glucose levels are personally when I've done the CGM and then I've done the finger prick monitoring I do find finger prick monitoring a little bit more reliable but I think the CGM is a great place to start if you are time poor and you don't want to be faffing around picking your pricking your finger and I guess carrying a monitor and strips around with you throughout the day if you're busy or if you have a busy job or you have a lot of meetings or things like that so there's a convenience element to having the CGM and also it's nice because you get a nighttime reading you're not going to wake up in the night and prick your finger but the CGM will measure your blood glucose 
across the night. And you can see if you're getting any highs and lows, which could be impacting your sleep. And it's also nice because you can see if you've got a very like steady, stable curve, like an undulation of blood sugar throughout the day, you get a very nice visual on what's actually happening. Or you can see if your blood sugar is kind of like peaks and troughs. So the graph aspect you get from the CGM is really nice as well. The finger prick, um, I think it's more sustainable for people who need to be measuring their blood sugar longer term because the CGMs are about 60 pounds, 50, 60 pounds. They last a couple of weeks only. So if this is something you want to be doing, I've been measuring my blood sugar on and off for about three years now. You know, it would cost me a fortune um, if I was using CGMs all the time. So it comes down to personal preference, but that's a really nice way to see what's happening. From there, you can make adjustments to your diet, make adjustments to your routines so that you can bring your blood glucose into a more regulated state. That then brings me on to, well, how do we do that? How do we create better blood glucose control? So there are several things which will impact your blood glucose. Diet, because we're eating three, four, five, who knows, six times a day, is going to have a significant impact on blood glucose. But our activity levels can have an impact on blood glucose, our stress levels, how well we've slept, how much muscle mass we have, any nutritional deficiencies, inflammation in the body, digestive health, toxins, and our hormonal cycles, if you're a woman, they're all going to have an impact on blood glucose. Now, it goes beyond the scope of this episode today to go into detail about all these areas. So I'm going to keep this conversation primarily focused on food. And the question is then, what do we need to think about when it comes to our diet and blood sugar control? And so the first thing is, carbohydrates in the diet are going to have a big influence on our blood sugar. But when we combine dietary carbohydrates like grains, root vegetables, fruits maybe, with proteins and with fats and with low-carb fibrous vegetables, that can help to smooth out the glycemic impact of those higher carbohydrate foods. And you may notice already, I haven't said pasta or bread or cakes or sticky buns or donuts, or I haven't mentioned processed carbohydrates because it's probably very unlikely that a diet high in processed carbohydrates is going to be good for blood sugar regulation. But some people will be able to tolerate certain amounts of unprocessed carbohydrates. But how I'd like to advise that people think about their diet is they start with protein first. So meals should be protein centric. We should be designing our meals around the protein source because we need to get adequate protein in our diet. It's really important for our muscle mass, for neurotransmitters, for repair, for enzymes, so many important things that we need protein for. And we need to make sure that we're getting adequate amounts. So we want to think about the protein source in our diet. You can choose if you want to be vegan or vegetarian, or if you want to eat animal protein or be pescatarian or eat eggs. 
I don't mind, but your diet wants to be centered around where you're getting your protein from. Then we want to add in some good fats. So that could be fats from oily fish, nuts and seeds, avocado, olives, olive oil, cold-pressed seed oils, maybe coconut products like coconut oil, coconut yogurt, coconut milk. Those will ideally make up the fats in our diet. And then we want to make sure we've got a good, decent amount of low-carbohydrate vegetables on our plate. And that's really any vegetable that doesn't grow below the ground. Vegetables that grow below the ground like beetroot, carrot, potatoes, butternut squash are all going to tend to be higher in carbohydrate, more likely to spike your blood sugar. So vegetables that grow above the ground will be your fibrous carbohydrates. So now you've got your plate of protein, fat, and fiber. And then you want to think about using your blood sugar monitoring to think, how much carbohydrate can I tolerate? If I want to add a sweet potato to that meal, what happens to my blood sugar an hour, two hours later? Or if I want to add some rice to that meal, what happens an hour, two hours later? And so from here, we can start to personalize our diets based on our glycemic responses. When I did this three years ago now, when I was in my initial stages of recovery, I couldn't tolerate any carbohydrates. I could have the protein, I could have the fat, I could have the vegetables. But the moment I put some rice, some sweet potato, some white potato on my plate my blood sugar levels went far too high. So that meant for me, for a period of time, I actually had to follow a very low carbohydrate diet until I was well enough to do more exercise, to build more muscle mass, so that I had bigger storage units for my glucose, my muscle mass being my storage units. And then I was able to start to introduce and tolerate more carbohydrate in my diet because I was using more carbohydrate through physical activity and I had bigger storage units for when I didn't need to use that carbohydrate immediately. Now, because I had to go on a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, that doesn't mean that every single person with fatigue does. The beauty of doing the glucose monitoring is that you get to work out exactly what your body needs. Some people don't like to know because it means they have to give up potatoes or give up rice or they can't have sweets or cakes or chocolates or ice creams. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of the situation. And you can choose to continue to eat those foods and feel bad and damage your health or you can choose to spend some time focusing on restoring your health so that you can enjoy those foods in moderation in the longer term. And that's what I've done. I can now have some of those sweet treats and enjoy them from time to time. I just don't overindulge too often. Then finally, I'll say as well, you know, if you're using a CGM, there's kind of no escape. You'll see your glucose and everything that's going on with your blood sugar for a two-week time frame. But when clients use the finger prick devices, they tend to only measure when they eat really well. And then they don't measure their blood sugar when they go out or they have a treat or they do something that's um, not making a healthy choice. But then what they're not realizing is they're 
avoiding or not measuring or eating in a way that makes them not want to measure several times a week. And then that several days of the week where they're experiencing regulation, or should I say dysregulation. So you want to make sure that you're really disciplined with yourself to gather your data, to gather your data consistently, to be very methodical about how you are collecting that data so that you're not kidding yourself that you've got this under control when the reality is when you eat really well, you've got it under control, but when you don't eat very well, you don't have it under control and you're not eating very well half of the week. So that's something to just keep in mind. Other little things that you may want to think about when you're looking at blood sugar control is sleep. So if you have a poor night's sleep, sometimes even the foods that you could tolerate before, you may not tolerate so well on a day after a bad night's sleep. That doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. You just do the best you can and then work on addressing your sleep. The two can kind of come hand in hand. So when our blood sugar is dysregulated, we don't sleep so well. Then we don't sleep so well. Then our blood sugar is dysregulated. So something needs to happen to break that cycle. Additionally, our physical activity can influence how much we're able to burn up sugar that we're eating, but also we are um, more insulin sensitive when we move more. So when you move your body, then you don't need insulin to take sugar out of the bloodstream into your muscles. It happens more passively when you exercise. Exercise is obviously really tough for people with fatigue, but if you can just do as much movement as you are safely able to, that's a really good place to start. And that could just be a little 10-minute walk before a meal or after a meal and um, just generally keeping your body moving as much as possible throughout the day. Stress levels will be another thing that will impact blood glucose. So if you didn't listen to the previous episode on nervous system regulation, you can go back and listen to that. That should give you some pointers in terms of managing stress throughout the day because stress is part of life. And it all comes down to how we manage ourselves and manage our environments and just manage the challenges that we experience day to day. And then there are some other more complex issues like nutrition deficiencies, which can impact blood sugar or digestive imbalances or inflammation in the body or toxic overload. All of these things can impact blood sugar control, but they are best explored with a practitioner if you need to do more testing, if you need to dig deeper. So for the purposes of this episode, just know that if you're having some gut issues that could be affecting your blood sugar and maybe once you address those gut issues, blood sugar balance gets a little bit better. If your body is overloaded with toxins, maybe you have some mold microtoxins, that could impact blood sugar. If you're in a state of inflammation, your body is naturally a little bit more insulin resistant because it wants to prioritize fuel towards the immune system. And then if you have any nutrient deficiencies, that can also cause blood sugar imbalances, specifically things like chromium, magnesium, or vitamin B6. 
So that brings me to the end of this episode today on blood sugar. Hopefully you are all rushing out now to get your CGMs or finger prick monitors and start monitoring how you are responding to your food. And you can use this um, podcast and you can use the feedback that you're getting from that monitoring to play around with your diet and approach it from a place of curiosity so that you can begin to optimize your blood sugar over time. I'll also just say here that it does take time. It took me, because of all the different things that were going on in my body, about a good year before I was really able to actually get my blood sugar to a healthy place two hours after a meal consistently. It would be a little bit hit and miss, especially with my evening meals. Earlier in the day, it tended to be much better. Um, And then once it was in that better place consistently, then to also broaden and add more carbohydrates back into my diet. So it takes time, it takes commitment, but is it worth doing? Definitely yes. And um, I hope you will find the benefit from it and enjoy the process.